Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, welcome everyone. We're so thankful and happy that you're here today. We will be um, learning with Rabbi Dr. Lindsay Taylor on Suffering Servants, How to Deal with the Missionary at the Door, and are excited to co-sponsor with Bethel Phoenix. And I will turn it over to Rabbi Nitzen for the introduction of the speaker. Welcome, everyone, in our program today. It's, it's so interesting and so fun uh, to have somebody like you, Rabbi Dr. Lindsay Taylor Goodhearts, to Join us all the way from London, right? This is what Zoom <laughs> has made possible, uh, in, connected internationally. And I'm very excited what you have to tell us more about the missionary at the door. <laughs> um, we certainly know those uh, people. And so just to give a little about your background. So you are a research fellow at London School of Jewish Studies at the Center for Jewish Studies, uh, Manchester University, where you are researching the history of Limud. And I want to ask the Limud, the organization Limud, right? Yes, the organization yes. Limud. <laughs> yes, 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 because Limud in England is from another world. If you ever can be in, uh, in England around the turn of the year, the secular year, you have to go to Limud. We have Limud here once a year, one study day, but it, the origins were there coming out of the UK. Um, and uh, it's something that is amazing. And I would love to, just alone on that topic, I would love to hear your, your research, but... You are not only a academic doctor, you are you received ordination last year, 2021, from Yeshivat Maharat, um, Orthodox Rabbinic Ordination. And you published your first book, Challenge and Conformity, the Religious Lives of Orthodox Jewish Women. And I can already tell a couple of us here would also love to hear more about that one. <laughs> um, you lectured at many well-known universities like the University of Cambridge, Oxford, and King's College in London. And you founded the Pop-Up Beit Midrash in 2019. And you're co-founder of Azara, which offers cross-denominational Jewish text learning across the UK. It would be just wonderful to hear about all your areas. You seem to be really, spread wonderfully spread out in so many interesting Jewish avenues. But today our topic is uh, how we respond to those who come to us um, wanting to persuade us of other persuasions. <laughs> so please, why don't you introduce the topic and share your wisdom with us? Thank you so much, that lovely introduction. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me to teach today. So, um, Yes, it's, uh, it's it's probably an experience that many of you had that the doorbell rings, you open the door and there is an unknown person on the doorstep who wants to talk to you about uh, about Christianity and persuade you of the truth of it. And a very well 
known phenomenon is that very often missionaries will try and use passages of Tanakh, of, of the Jewish Bible, to convince you of the truth of Christianity. Uh, so this has certainly happened to me a few times. I have to say a warning. The best thing to do is just to say, no, thank you so much and close the door and probably not to spend a lot of time trying to argue with them. But there are those of us who feel like they like to do that. And I have a friend who actually invited them in, gave them a cup of tea, sat them down and then discussed Bible with them and, and confounded them uh, and had a wonderful time doing it. So um, I, I would be careful about doing that because it can get heated. But what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some of the passages from the book of Isaiah that are very often used in this way. It's all very well shutting the door and going, eh, don't want to know, but uh, many of us might look at those passages and go, well, what's the Jewish angle on these passages? How do we understand them? And very often many of us don't actually get much time to study books of the Nevi'im, particularly Isaiah, which is very long, and um, quite often we don't know what is the Jewish attitude to these passages. How do we understand them? Um, and so I thought that's a good idea. We could actually look at these things. I would like also to add the rider that not all Christians use these passages in this way. I have many dear and beloved Christian friends who would not use uh, passages of Isaiah to try and enforce their opinions on me. And uh, many, many Christians nowadays feel that Jews have absolutely the right to uh, interpret their own scriptures and don't have to listen to Christians doing it for them. But there are some, some uh, organizations still out there who do still make use of these passages. So we're just going to look at three passages and I'm going to share the screen with you so that we can see the handout, which I think is also available um, for you to, to look at afterwards. And I've started it with the, what I think is one of the funniest ever um, quotes from Benjamin Disraeli, who was actually Prime Minister of, of Great Britain for a while. Uh, he wrote, the Jews are a nervous people. 19th centuries of Christian love have taken a toll, which I think is hilarious, especially given the fact that Disraeli himself uh, was converted to Christianity when he was about 13 by his father, who had a broigas with the local Spanish and Portuguese community. Um, but I think he, he retained a very strong sense of his Jewish identity all his, all his life. So, we are going to look, first of all, at two passages about virgins and sons, which are very well known, and we'll see how they fit into a Christian understanding of things and then how they fit into a Jewish understanding of things. And the one word I would mention here is context is very, very important. So let's go to this one. You probably have come across these at some point or other. Uh, and I've given the King James translation from 1611 because it's so well known. So the first one is Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 14, and the King James has, as the translation here, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, that is often waved around. There you are, Isaiah pre predicts the coming of Jesus, who was born of a virgin and um, is known as Emmanuel. But as we're going to see, this is not the whole story. First of all, one of the considerations is always which translation are you using? Because the book of Isaiah is notoriously difficult to translate. It is full of very elaborate literary Hebrew, and it's by no means a clear book. And another twist on Isaiah is it's not written in a chronological way. And it's quite often to, 
difficult to assign a particular prophecy to a particular historical context. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not so clear, and they certainly don't appear in chronological order. So that makes the interpretation of individual passages quite difficult. First of all, let's look at the Jewish Publication Society translation. We'll see that's a little bit different. Assuredly, my Lord will give you a sign of his own accord. Look, the young woman is with child and about to give birth to a son. Let her name him Emmanuel. Okay, so if we just look at this, we'll see that there are some major differences. So the word virgin here is translated by young woman. And this is a classic because the word there is Alma, which generally means a young woman. There is a specific word in Hebrew for virgin, betula, but that's not used here. So this is one of the very first, uh, if you like, divergences in interpretation of this. And then we have the tense of the verb. Uh, it just says hara in the Hebrew. Uh, that looks like a past. Here, however, it's translated as a future. She shall conceive. Here, she is with child. She has already conceived. Uh, which, again, are we talking about a, a woman who will get pregnant in the future and have a baby? Or are we talking about a woman who is already pregnant in the time of Isaiah is about to have that child? Uh, and then the, the third major difference is she will call his name Emmanuel. And if this is all in the future, it sounds like she will call his name Emmanuel uh, because of it's already decreed by God. Uh, here it's, well, there's a baby on the way. Uh, let her name Emmanuel. She still has the power to name it, but God is recommending or giving the name rather than a prediction. It's a recommendation, if you like. So we already, just in the translations, we can see something is going on. So step one in any passage like this is look at translations, compare translations, see exactly what is going on. Is this a particularly difficult text that is in certain places? And why was this always such an important um, text for, for Christianity might be the thing to look at next. And if we look at a passage from the New Testament, we can see this passage is already quoted in the New Testament. And nobody quite knows the date of the Gospels. They are at least 30, 40, maybe even 50 or later years after the death of Jesus, so they're not contemporary. But we can see that this text from Isaiah is already important if we look at the King James translation here of Matthew 1. While he thought on these things, that he here is Joseph, uh, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and shall, thou shalt call his name Jesus, not Emmanuel, you note, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us, which is exactly what Emmanuel means. Okay. So this is why it's such an important text, because it is already used as a proof text of the birth of Jesus in the New Testament itself. Okay, so we've looked at translation. We've looked at why this text might be important in the Christian scheme of things. And the next thing we need to do is look at the context of that verse. What actually is it doing in the book of Isaiah? And here, this bit is not going to be as familiar, I imagine. Okay, I've chosen to use here Robert Alter's translation, which is a nice modern translation. It's fairly literal, 
and retains a lot of features of the Hebrew that sometimes the JPS will iron out and make into pretty English. Okay, so we're back in a history story. And it happened in the days of Ahaz, son of Yotam, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Aram, with Pechach, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to do battle against it. But he was not able to battle against it. Well, this is starting in the middle of things, so we need a bit of background here. We're talking about 150 years after the death of King Solomon. Everything had gone okay with the kingdom of uh, the Israelites up to the death of Solomon. We'd had King David, we'd had Solomon, and after Solomon dies, his son becomes king. But then the troubles start. Ten of the tribes of Israel don't like Solomon's son, and they split off and they nominate a completely different person, not from Solomon's family, as the king of a new kingdom. And this becomes the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, whose capital was at Samaria, and had a whole set of dynasties of its own. Only two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, stay loyal to Solomon's son, who was after all David's grandson, and they form the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, which also has its own dynasty and sometimes changes of dynasty. And those two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, in the north and the south, run concurrently for quite a time. I'm going to anticipate here and tell you that the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, came to an end in the time of Isaiah in the year 721 BCE, right halfway through Isaiah's mission as a prophet. And the context is, first of all, this divided kingship, and secondly, the fact that at this time, the empire of Assyria, the big global power into the northeast and what is now roughly Iraq, um, bits around Iraq too, uh, was at the height of its powers and expanding. And there were constant Assyrian raids into the kingdom of Israel. In 721, the Assyrians conquered that kingdom and destroyed it and continued to raid the kingdom of Judah, which was absolutely on tenterhooks, expecting a similar fate. And this is when Isaiah's prophet. So he is a prophet at a time of huge um, concern, huge tension, huge worry about what is going to happen with the Assyrian invasions. The other power of the time, Egypt, down in the southwest, is weak at this time, so they're not terribly reliable, and the overtures are made to them by some of the little kingdoms getting squashed in the middle. You can't necessarily rely on the Egyptians, but you can rely on the Assyrians to come back. So this is the political and historical context of this story. So we can go back to it and understand it a bit better. Ahaz is the current king. He's king of Judah. His rival, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Pechaz and Ramalia, wants to fight off the Assyrians. And he has joined forces with a non-Jewish king, Rezin, king of Aram. There were three little kingdoms of Aram and what is now Syria. And they want to stand up against the Assyrians. Ahaz knows that this is probably national suicide. You can't fight the Assyrians, they're too, too big. So he doesn't want to join them in their desperate enterprise. They're not pleased, so they go to fight him, hoping to put in a usurper, a new king, a puppet king of their own, who will support them in their battle against the Assyrians. 
So we had this moment of extreme tension. It was told to the House of David, to the royal family, Aram has joined with Ephraim, another name for the Northern Kingdom. These two kingdoms are going to unite against you and has made its heart and the heart of its people sway like the trees of the forest before the wind. So in other words, everyone is coming to get you. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out, pray, to meet King Ahaz, you and Shah Yashuv, your son, to the edge of the conduit at the upper pool by the road of the Fuller's Field, just outside the town of Jerusalem. And you shall say to him, watch yourself and be tranquil. Do not fear. Let your heart not quail because of these two smoking tails of firebrands over the blazing wrath of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramiah, inasmuch as Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has devised evil, evil counsel against you. Don't worry about these two kings ganging up against you. They have said, let us go up against Judah and shake it and we shall break it into pieces for ourselves and we shall set up within it the son of Tebel as king. Don't worry about all of this. They've got a project to attack you, to invade you, to set up this son of Tebel as king. And you should know that when somebody is just son of somebody without their own name, it's a very contemptuous way of referring to them. Thus says the master of the Lord, it shall not happen and it shall not be that the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And in another 65 years, Ephraim as a people shall be smashed. So this is the prediction of the destruction of the Northern Kingdom by the Assyrians. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you trust not, you shall not hold firm. In other words, just hang on. See this one out. These kings will not dethrone you and bad things are going to happen to the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask for a sign for the people of the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or high above. Ask God to do a sign for you. You can have any sign you want to show that you are going safe. These invasions will not touch you. And Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not test the Lord. He's aware that there is a commandment that you mustn't test God. And he thinks that this applies now. And Isaiah said, Listen, pray, O house of David. Is it not enough for you to weary men that you should weary my God as well? We asked you for a sign. Come on. God said you can do a sign. Therefore, the master, God himself, shall give you a sign. The young woman is about to conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Not quite clear yet who the young woman is. We'll have to discuss that in a moment. Curds and honey he shall eat till he knows how to reject evil and choose good. For before the lad knows how to reject evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you despise shall be abandoned. The Lord shall bring upon you and your people and on your father's house days that have not come from the day Ephraim turned away from Judah, the king of Assyria. In other words, yes, there will be an Assyrian invasion, but this is partly, this is going to happen later on, and certainly these two kings are not going to harm you now. Because you rejected God's offer of a sign, God would give his own sign. A young woman will have a baby and call him. Emmanuel. He will be fed on curds and honey. He seems to be from a rich family. But before he knows how to say no to bad, yes to good, before that, this crisis will have disappeared and it's also going to be an Assyrian invasion. Okay, so it's quite complicated, but it doesn't seem to be talking about something in the far future. Let's go back to who this young woman might be. 
that's not at all clear. Uh, there are interpretations that this is the wife of Isaiah the prophet. Okay, he already has one son who has a symbolic name. We just saw him. He's called uh, Sheah Yashuv, which means a remnant will come back. So it would be quite logical that he should have another son who's going to be given the name Emmanuel, God with us. And in chapter eight, we have reference to a third son with the symbolic name Mahershalel Kashbaz, which means haste to the booty, speed to the prey. So it could be that this child is a son of Isaiah, who's already on the way. And the sign is the name God is with us, very confident, inspiring name that he's going to be given. Uh, who else could it be? The young woman could be the king's wife. It might be that the king's wife is pregnant and about to have a child and he should be called God is with us again. Uh, what is the sign? Maybe the birth of the child, maybe the name of the child, uh, maybe the date of the child's ability to tell the difference between good and evil. This particular threat that you're facing at the moment from these two kings will have gone by then, but there is going to be an Assyrian invasion. What it doesn't seem to be is talking about the distant future. It doesn't seem to be a sign about some woman in the distant future will have a child called Emmanuel. It all seems to be very much linked to this particular historical event. So it doesn't, it's not actually good material when you take it in context for the prediction of anything about any future Messiah or future person called Jesus. First of all, it's the wrong name. It doesn't say she would call his name Jesus, it says I call his name Emmanuel. What about our classical commentators? What do they see? Okay, let's look at Rashi, our classical commentator par excellence. Uh, he understands the young woman to be my wife, Isaiah's wife. So he says, okay, this is Isaiah's wife we're talking about. She has conceived this year, we can date it in the fourth year of King Ahaz's reign. She's about to give birth to a son and she'll call him. This is a reference to the fact that the name will be inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, will inspire her, and she will, in other words, may our rock be with us, and that's the sign. Without being told by anybody else, this young woman, who is the prophet's wife, will have a baby, and she will decide he's called Emmanuel, and that is the sign that God is giving you. And why is this a sign? She was a young woman. She had never prophesied before. And now the Holy Spirit was going to inspire her. This is why it says later on in chapter eight, the next chapter, Isaiah says, I was intimate with the prophetess, with the Niviah, with Mrs. Prophet. We don't find that a prophet's wife is ever called a Niviah, a prophetess in her own right, unless she herself prophesied. So her naming the baby Emmanuel is a sign she is also a prophet. Then Rashi notices that there are other interpretations. Maybe it was the king's son. There are those who interpret this as referring to Hezekiah, the next king after Ahaz and his son. But that's impossible. For if you reckon up his years, you'll find that Hezekiah was born nine years before his father began to reign. No, nope, he was born way before. Other people interpret it in this way, that this is a sign she was a very young woman indeed, and she wouldn't have been expected to bear a, son, a child. So Rashi gives us three possibilities um, here. The sign is the name that the young woman gives. Uh, the sign is the fact that this young woman prophesies, or the sign is that she was very young and wouldn't naturally have been having a child at this stage. And he gives us 
two possibilities as to who the young woman is. The one he prefers is it's Mrs. Isaiah, also called Mrs. Prophet. And the other possibility is Hezekiah, but Rashi says, no, the, the, the chronology doesn't fit. Okay. Now, all those interpretations seem to go pretty well with our historical background. This explains who was who were the players, why a sign was needed, possibilities as to what that sign was, and locates it all in this story of the Syrian invasions and trouble on the northern border with the king of Israel and the king of Aram. Uh, you don't need to go to the far future. Let's have a look at one more of our great classic uh, commentators, David Kimchi, who has different ideas, but also refutes. He's much more interested in refuting Christian interpretations because he knows about them. Behold, young woman is conceived. Okay, young woman, she was not a virgin, as the Christians claim, but an Alma, a young woman, uses the word Na'ara as a synonym for Alma, whether virgin or married. For instance, if you look at the book of Mishle, the book of Proverbs, here's the use of it, the way of a man with a young woman, an Alma, and that's talking about a married woman, so not necessarily a virgin. And similarly, we have a masculine form, a young man is called an Elam, which is the male form of Alma, as in whose son is this Elam from the book of Sam. So the woman was very young and that's why she's referred to as an Alma, nothing to do with being a virgin. And then we can see where Kimchi matches up with, with uh, Rashi. This young woman is the prophet's wife, she's Mrs. Isaiah. Or else she's the wife of King Ahaz, which is more likely, since if she was the prophet's wife, he would have referred to her as the Nivia, as he does in chapter eight. We saw that already. It appears that Kimchi wasn't worried about the chronology of uh, the birth of Hezekiah here. And what is the sign? For Kimchi, the sign is he shall eat curds and honey. In other words, the moment is born, he shall eat, knowing that curds and honey are edible. Very small babies don't generally eat curds and honey. They eat breast milk, that's it. But no, the miraculous sign that this will, a baby, it will be a baby who can eat adult food. And everything sweet thing that they bring close to his mouth, he will open his mouth and take it. But if they bring something unpleasant to his mouth, he will reject it. That's knowing good from evil. He knows good food from bad food. And that's unusual in a newborn. Uh, usually kids are a bit older when they start going, that's good food and that is not food at all. So that's the miraculous sign that's being given. And to answer the heretics, the minim, he may mean Christians here by this passage, it's all explained in the book Sefer Habrit by my father of blessed memory, which is quite an anti-Christian book. For if this sign were to do with Jesus, as they say, what did it mean for King Ahaz? Since it was to come more than 400 years later, actually more than 700 years later, how could Ahaz take comfort from something that was not going to happen in his days? And that is a very telling point because in the con context of Isaiah, you can understand why it has me some sort of sign, whatever that sign is. But in the middle of facing invasion from the northern neighbors and possible invasion from Assyria, what good would it to be to be told that, oh, in 700 years time, uh, a child is going to be born called Emmanuel, born of a virgin. That would have absolutely no function in that passage of Isaiah. So the context here in Jewish understanding would completely remove any possibility of this particular verse having anything to do, not only with Jesus, but anyone in the future, because it is specific to the context of King Ahaz and the troubles he was facing at the time. So context is very, very important when we look at any sort of verse. And to 
take that verse out of its historical context and say it's talking about Jesus involves a whole load of assumptions and logical jumps that are quite difficult to justify. We'll go on to our other son verse from Isaiah chapter nine. And uh, again, this is perhaps a little bit um, more fluid. It's not so locked into a historical story, um, but it does again seem to be a, a prediction that is linked to tension with Assyria, tension with trouble. Um, it could be just before the fall of the Northern Kingdom in that 721 to the Assyrians, or it could be to do with Hezekiah at a later time when the Assyrians were invading in 701, which we have lots of, lots of archeological evidence from, but there seems to be a focus on a new king here. So we'll read the text and then we'll have a little look and see how Jusable was understood it. So here's our King James translation of it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now you notice that commas and capital letters have quite a role to play here, um, by the way, neither of which actually appears in the original Hebrew. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So a very standard Christian understanding of this uh, uh, verse is that this is Jesus. He's wonderful counselor. He's called the mighty God. Therefore, Jesus is God. Uh, everlasting father, prince of peace. Yeah. And he's descended from David. So this is a prediction of Jesus. Again, if we take our criteria for looking at texts, let's start with translation. Let's look at how the JPS translation works here. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and authority has settled on his shoulders. He has been named the mighty God is planning grace. The eternal father is planning a peaceable ruler, which is a very different way of stringing those words together. In token of abundant authority, the peace without limit upon David's throne and kingdom, that it may be firmly established in justice and in equity now and evermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall bring this to pass. Okay, so uh, again, translation is going to be very important. There are a series of nouns here and it depends how you link them up. Let's look at what Rashi understands about this. A child has been born to us. Well, has already been born to us, not is going to be born in the future, so it's not a prediction. Therefore, we have to find a historical person who is this child. Even though King Ahaz, who we saw just now in chapter seven was wicked, his son Hezekiah, who has been born some years ago, will be king for us instead of him. So this is about a king of Judah, not somebody in the far future, and he will be righteous. You might remember that Hezekiah was a very good king. And the authority of the Holy One, blessed be he, and his yoke will be upon this king's shoulder. For he will engage in Torah and will keep the commandments and will give his shoulder to the burden of the Holy One, blessed be he. He shall be called, and here we have a little witch, the Holy One, blessed he who gives wonderful counsel and who is mighty God, eternal father, he shall name Hezekiah Prince of Peace, for there shall be peace and truth in his days. And to see what Rashi's done here, we look back at the earlier translation. Here, the son is going to be called 
wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the Prince of Peace. What Rashi has said is God, who is the wonderful counselor and mighty and our everlasting father, will call this child the Prince of Peace. So he's chopped the verse up in a very different way and interpreted it in a completely different way. And this actually seems to go slightly against the modern academic understanding, but the modern academic understanding also doesn't actually read this particular series of words in the same way that the King James does. So this is from the Jewish Study Bible, fabulous book. If you haven't got it, you should get it. Uh, and this is from one of the comments by Benjamin Sonner. Isaiah 9.5, he has been named, this child has been born, has been named, the mighty God is planning grace, the eternal father is planning a peaceful ruler. This long sentence is the throne name of the royal child. Semitic names often consist of sentences that describe God. Thus name Isaiah, Yeshiyahu in Hebrew, means the Lord saves. Hezekiah, Chizkiyahu in Hebrew, means the Lord strengthens. In Akkadian, the language of that, uh, well, there were dialects of Assyrian and Babylonian, but it's the language of ancient Mesopotamia. The name of the Babylonian king, Merodach Baladan, who's mentioned in the book of Isaiah, means the god Marduk has provided an heir. These names don't describe that person who holds the name, but the god whom the parents worship. Similarly, the name given to the child in this verse doesn't describe that child or attribute divinity to him, contrary to classical Christian readings of this messianic verse. Okay. Messianic here meaning anointed person, and Hezekiah was an anointed king. And if we look back again at the translation of the King James, you can see that the names, the nouns in that name are being attributed to the child. Wonderful, counselor, the child is the mighty God, the child is the everlasting father, the child is the prince of peace, as opposed to descriptive names, the mighty God is planning grace, the eternal father is planning a peaceful ruler, which fits in with your standard Semitic name, where God is described, and God is certainly not the person who is being named. So again, context, cultural context, the way names work, the way uh, conventions work in the ancient Near East are very important in understanding it. And if you just read that as this is a name describing the child, well, you've taken that out of context and you're not really aware of how the Bible uses names and how the Bible constructs names in any way. So those verses about virgins and sons are, you could say, um, easily diffusable or easily, very easily understood in perfectly contextual way um, without any need to do great gymnastics or acrobatics to remove any Christian interpretation. Uh, actually, the, the Christian interpretations really are doing quite a bit of violence to the original text and the context of those verses here. The Songs of the Suffering Servant, which is the last text I want to look at, are a different matter. Now, there are several of these songs. I've put the references in here so you can look at more up if you want to. Um, and in each of them, a mysterious figure seems to suffer, um, is bruised, is beaten, is treated very badly, um, is sometimes described as bearing sins for other people, and generally has a hard time of it, even though clearly they're a very good person. Again, for Christians, this was always identified with Jesus. For Jews, however, this is actually quite a difficult problem, because who 
is this figure? Very, very difficult indeed to ally this figure or interpret this figure as a particular historical example. The ones we've already seen were quite easily tie, tie in with Hezekiah, or with Ahaz, or with the prophet's wife, or with the prophet's son. And reading from the context, it's not hard at all to these people as involved in those stories. But the suffering servant doesn't appear in a historical novel, uh, uh, narrative. There are these four different passages. You can see they're all from the second part of Isaiah. Uh, and they don't embed at all in a story. So it's much harder to say that context will show us exactly who this figure is. And these are much, much harder to, if you like, explain away or much harder to interpret altogether. Um, I've given you a sort of chunk of it, not the whole thing. Um, and we'll probably not do the whole thing, it's a bit long. But a sample, and I've just used the NJPS translation here. Uh, this is God speaking when we start the passage. Indeed, my servant shall prosper, be exalted and raised to great heights. Just as the many were appalled at him, so marred was his appearance, unlike that of man, his form beyond human semblance. Just so he shall startle many nations. Kings shall be silenced because of him, for they shall see what has not been told them, shall behold what they have never heard. Who can believe what we have heard? This is the king speaking. Upon whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he has grown by his favor, by God's favor, like a tree crown, like a tree trunk out of arid ground. He had no form or beauty that we should look at him, no charm that we should find him pleasing. He was despised, shunned by men, a man of suffering, familiar with disease, as one who hid his face for us. He was despised, we held him with no account. Yet it was our sickness that he was bearing, our suffering that he endured. We accounted him plagued, smitten and afflicted by God, that he was wounded because of our sins, crushed because of our iniquities. He bore the chastisement that made us whole, and by his bruises we were healed. So this is very opaque. We seem to have a figure who God describes as his servant, uh, he says he will prosper, he will be exalted, great things will happen to him. But back in the past, people thought he was of no account, they were appalled at him, he didn't look like a human being, um, kings won't believe the change in his fortune, and the kings will say, oh, we thought he was nobody, uh, he was shunned, he was a man of suffering, but all the time he was bearing our sins and our sickness. Now it's very hard know who the heck that is. And it's very easy to see why Christians might think it was Jesus. Um, we'll just do the last bit again. This is very famous. He was maltreated. Yes, he was submissive. He did not open his mouth like a sheep being led to slaughter, like a you dumb before those who share her. He did not open his mouth. By oppressive judgment, he was taken away. Who could describe his abode? He was cut off from the land of the living through the sin of my people who deserve the punishment. Now, for Christians, that is obviously Jesus, but for Jews, it's not at all clear who on earth this person is. Uh, here, translation doesn't help us a lot, because that is more or less the plain meaning of it. That's, that's a perfectly accurate translation. Um, another reason that Christians find this uh, so important is, again, this is an, uh, a passage that is quoted in the New Testament, which leads, lends it a certain sort of... Um, validity, if you like, as a, as a text to use as a proof text. 
uh, we have the story of an angel telling uh, Philip, one of the apostles, to go uh, to the road and he meets an Ethiopian eunuch who's coming back um, to, or coming up to Jerusalem to worship and he's reading and Philip and him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian eunuch says, no, I know who this person's about. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this, it's our passage, as a sheep led to the slaughter or a lamb before its shearer is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken up from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, pray, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? So Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. So we have an identification of Jesus from the book of Acts, which is one of the earliest parts of the New Testament. Again, after the death of Jesus, but pretty early on. So that's why it's so important in a Christian context. But we then have to ask ourselves, well, what have Jews thought about this? Have Jews ever understood this passage as, as uh, referring to a Messiah? And the answer is yes, they have, actually. Uh, how do we know this? We know this from Targum Yonatan, an Aramaic translation of Isaiah, difficult to date from about 100 to 400 CE. Uh, we're not going to read all this because it's difficult, but the italicized bits are the additions or the reworkings of the original text. And you can see it starts off, Behold my servant, the Messiah, shall prosper, shall be exalted and increased, and shall be very strong. And what the, uh, the translator here does is all the bits about suffering and sadness, he shunts off this figure and puts squarely on the people of Israel. So for instance, we have... Uh, we have... Um, all we like sheep have been scattered, we, the Jewish people, have gone into exile, everyone his own way. So troublesome bits, sad and suffering bits are put onto the people of Israel, but the figure, but the positive figure are interpreted as the Messiah. He beseeches and he is answered. And before he opens his mouth, he is accepted. The strong ones of the people he will hand over like a lamb to sacrifice. Not, not him to sacrifice, it is the enemies of the people of Israel. So it's a shunting away and a dividing up, not one single figure. Negative aspects are either the suffering of the people of Israel or they are the punishment of the non-Jewish nations with the fact Israel. Positive bits are the Messiah. So that's quite interesting, um, sort of chopping the text up into different interpretations. And it's not completely made up either. So for instance, in verse seven, um, where we have, he beseeches and he is answered. If you look back at, the uh, earlier translation, verse seven is, he was maltreated, yes, he was submissive. He did not open his mouth. And the Hebrew is actually, nigas um, na'ana. So that could be he was maltreated and he was tortured, but the translator here into Aramaic has chosen different Hebrew roots. He's interpreted nigas as nigash. He approaches, he beseeches. And na'ana, which can mean he is tortured, is understood as coming from the root ane to answer. He is answered. So instead of he was maltreated and he was tortured, we have a translation that reads it as he beseeches God and he is answered. So by an, a very interesting translation and adjustment, this uh, translator manages to have his cake and eat it. 
It is the Messiah, but bad things are not the Messiah. Okay, were there other early Jewish interpretations of this passage? Yes, there were, and we know about them from a Christian from Oregon, who was an early Christian theologian and scholar. And he writes, I remember on at a disputation held with certain Jews who were reckoned wise men, I quoted these prophecies about the suffering servant. To which my Jewish opponent replied that these predictions bore reference to the whole people. The suffering servant is the Jewish people, regarded as one individual, and as being in a state of dispersion and suffering, in order that many proselytes might be gained on account of the dispersion of the Jews among numerous heathen nations. So this third century Jew who talked to Oregon says, no, 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 this is about the Jewish people and the sufferings have come upon us in order that we may be spread among the nations and many people may learn about the one true God. It's nothing to do with Jesus. So we know that there's a variety of interpretations in the uh, ancient Jewish world. It's the Messiah, but the bad bits aren't. It's the nation of Israel. And there are also interpretations that actually it's referring to the prophet Isaiah himself. So in distinction to Jewish interpretation, uh, Christian interpretation, which always saw this as Jesus and nobody else, Jewish interpretation had many possibilities, possibly the Messiah, possibly the Jewish people seen as one person, possibly the prophet Isaiah, and those are the main Jewish interpretations. And this text was used a lot in disputations in the Middle Ages. It was a, one of the main weapons of, of Christians trying to convert Jews in the Middle Ages. And uh, we have a fabulous record of it from no less than our great commentator, the Ramban, Nachmanides, who was forced to undertake a public disputation with a Christian uh, monk who had originally been Jewish, uh, Brother Paul. They brought up this passage. We'll just look at this. That man, his adversary, the Christian monk, then argued, see the passage beginning with the words, behold, my servant will prosper, that's our passage, relates the matter of the death of the Messiah, of his subjection, and of his being set among the wicked, just as happened with Jesus. Do you believe that the passage speaks of the Messiah? Ramban says, I said to him, according to the truly plain meaning of the passage, it speaks only of the people of Israel in general. So the prophets call them continually, Israel my servant, Jacob my servant. But his opponent says, I will show from the words you are in sages that the passage speaks of the Messiah. And then we have a fascinating bit. Ramban says, it's true that our teachers, may their memory be for a blessing, in the Agadic books, and he may be thinking of that Targumic translation, interpret the passage allegorically of the Messiah. But they never said the Messiah would be slain by the hand of his enemies. You will never find in any book of the literature of Israel, either in the Talmud or the Agadic books, that Messiah, son of David, would ever be slain, or that he'd be betrayed into the hands of his enemies, or that he'd be buried among the wicked. And even your Messiah, who you made for yourself, means Jesus, was not buried among the wicked. If you like, I will give you an excellent and detailed explanation of the passage in Isaiah. There's nothing there about the Messiah's being slain as happened with your Messiah, but they did not want to hear it. And what is quite amazing um, is uh, that we have this argument. Um, Rambam had commentary on this part of Isaiah, and he mostly interprets uh, the verses as referring to the Messiah's thoughts and his willingness to die for the sake of his people. But he definitely notes that the end of the passage explicitly says the Messiah won't die or be killed. And he also preserves this interpretation. It may also refer, perhaps simultaneously, it may refer to the people of Israel as a whole. But he definitely is very against the idea that this could possibly 
be referred to as suffering and dying Messiah. But when you look at the Christian record of the argument, you find that's not what they heard. So there's the Christian account of the same disputation um, with Amben. He was asked whether the chapter of Isaiah 53, Lord would have believed, uh, speaks about the Messiah. He firmly asserted it does not speak of the Messiah at all, but it was proved to him by many authorities from the Talmud, which speak of the passion of Christ and his death, which they proved in the set chapter, that the said chapter of Isaiah is understood of the death of the Christ, of the Christ and in it the death of Christ and his passion and burial and resurrection are contained. He, however, compelled at length by the authorities, admitted that it is understood and explained in reference to Christ. With this, it is plain the Messiah had to suffer and die. Remember that the original meaning of Christos is Messiah, anointed person. So that's why it occurs there. So they have willfully misunderstood Ramban, who did not say anything of the sort. He said there are allegorical interpretations that refer this to the Messiah, but there is no reference to a death or suffering of the Messiah. And it therefore cannot be anything to do with Jesus. So they've completely, completely distorted what Ramban said there. So what do we get out of all this? So what's our, what's our take home? First of all, probably the best idea not to argue about this with, uh, with missionaries because, you know, you could, you could be stuck there forever. But the basics are, Isaiah is a notoriously difficult book. There is no clear chronological framework. The Hebrew is very, very hard indeed. It's very often quite difficult to connect prophecies up to events or to know exactly what they're talking about. Sometimes it's easier. Our first two examples were much, much easier. Also, there are different Jewish and Christian ideas about prophets. So Christians very often see the main function of a biblical prophet as foretelling the life of Jesus. And therefore, there is only ever one um, interpretation. It has to be Jesus because there aren't any alternatives. Um, it does raise the question, why on earth would God bother telling people about Jesus 700 years before he turned up? Because it would have meant nothing to them at the time. So that is a question that isn't really answered very much by classical Christian interpretation. But in contrast, Jews retain the ability to try out different interpretations. We don't have just one interpretation of these passages, as we've seen. Uh, some people do think some of them refer to a Messiah, not Jesus, but the Messiah. Uh, some people attribute them to the prophet Isaiah or members of his family. Some people refer to historical kings and figures of kings who appear in various stories. Um, so all those are possible. All those have occurred in Jewish interpretation. And we can continue to argue and discuss like we do with most of Tanakh. Uh, but Jesus isn't an option for Jews because he just doesn't, he doesn't fit into our understanding of how the world works, really. The big arc of creation, revelation redemption that the Tanakh describes doesn't really have a place for Jesus. Um, it doesn't, there is no place for Jesus in a Jewish understanding of God, universe, and history, apart from just as, well, another poor Jew who got himself killed by the Romans. So it's uh, basically the interpretation of these passages starts from where you are before you see those passages. You probably will never convince an evangelical Christian that these do not refer to Jesus. And I doubt very much that evangelical Christians are going to convince many Jews that these refer to Jesus. But with the tools of translation, context, and looking at the enormous resources our traditional um, commentators provide, we can come to quite a nuanced and, uh, and we say, um, adaptable and fluid 
interpretation of what those might mean in Jewish context. We don't have to sign up to an absolute definite understanding because sometimes these are not clear at all. And I don't really think once you've seen them in context, you've thought about translation, you've thought about uh, all these factors we've talked about that you really would be very tempted by many of the Christian interpretations, which do seem to be a little one dimensional. As I said at the beginning, it's very important to realize that very, very many modern Christians would not use this text in this way and would be scandalized at the thought that people are trying to use them to convert Jews. So don't, don't tar all Christians with the same brush by any means. But there are still groups and uh, individuals in Christianity who do use these texts in this way. And it's as well to know what we think about these texts and the options as Jews we have for reading them um, in case we do come across uh, people of that who want to impose their own understandings of these texts on us. So I'll finish it there. And um, we should probably do some questions. Yeah, thank you very much. This was so insightful. And I think uh, often it is, we're, you know, it is very important for us to understand all the background that goes into these passages because when they're presented in the discussion, they're so they look so convincing. <laughs> um, very convincing. Yes. <laughs> so um, I would like to um, to open up the forum um, to questions um, if, from the audience. Is there anybody who would like to? Yeah, Wendy, please. Thank you. What a great presentation. Thank you so much. Um, my question is really about meeting the missionary at the door. My question is about this prophecy of Isaiah. What kind of prophecy is it that you're going to have a baby and you're going to name him something when you know you're going to have a baby and you might even know what you're going to name it? So I'm just confused by that. How is that prophecy? This is why that's only one of the options for what the sign is. And that's why other possibilities for what the sign is don't go down the because she called him Emmanuel, that was the sign. So we saw that there's one interpretation that she was unnaturally young to have a baby and that would be a miraculous sign. We also saw the idea that the child can eat right away as a newborn, can eat adult food and knows what is good food and what is bad food. And that's a miraculous sign. Um, whatever the sign is, it seems to be a time indicator. By the time the child knows X, so the focus is far less on the child as a special person, far more on, well, I can tell you in the next three years, and I give, give you a poetic way of telling the time for this, um, when the child is born and given the name, or when this really young woman produces the baby, or when this child can distinguish between good and bad food. By that time, this really important thing I want to tell you about will have happened. So really that whole um, sign is about a time sign. And really the child is quite incidental of it doesn't say going to be good child bad child special child um except possibly in being but it's much more concerned this will happen by the date i give you and again it's a little ambigu ambiguous you see there are at least three possibilities there as to what that sign could be yeah, and it's, it's, also it's also fascinating because, you know, the prophets have themselves, you know, named their children as a sign of the time, right? Yes. Um, you know, Aryashu, the, the one who returns, right? The rest will return as part of their prophecy to the contemporary situation. Yes, right? exactly. Which so, makes it so hard to presume that Emmanuel is being named in reference 
relates to something that might happen for 700 years later. You know, there's, and sorry, you know, symbolic names don't work that way. <laughs> Plus, of course, yeah, oh, well, Jesus wasn't actually called Emmanuel, he was called Jesus. So uh, <laughs> it doesn't right, work I, on that level. Or I even think of like Rachel and Leah, right? Leah naming her sons as something that she experiences in her time. So, I mean, that's maybe something, you know, that can one, one can like refer to in a discussion. I wanted to mention one of the questions, you know, going back to really going to the discussion to with missionaries or with people at the... Um, that was posted in our chat, right? Andrea Weinberg asked, is it better to start with the nitty gritty translation errors or to go with the big concepts of how, you know, the Messiah, the Christian Messiah is different. And I also think um, about this in often because we have a fundamentally different concept of, you know, the essence of the human being in the world and so how if you could you know enlighten us on and that question that would be okay. um, well it's a bit difficult to give advice because it probably depends on the person you're talking to and um, sometimes just bringing up the translation errors will give them pause you know, and, and particularly looking at the historical context and going well you did that personally but have you read the chapter around it do you understand what that verse is doing? So, um, you know, if the people are quoting verses at you, I think I'd probably start there. Um, and then I'd go on to the concept of a, a Messiah and point out that a Mashiach just means somebody who is anointed uh, for a particular purpose by God. So every king of, of, of Judah, whoever was, was a Messiah. He was a Mashiach. He was a legally anointed person. Um, and we have lots of incidences of those anointings. So when Samuel anoints King Saul, or when Samuel anoints King David, uh, you know, those are very important moments. So um, there's no uh, certain, there's not a very strong concept of, uh, concept of a Mashiach of the future, other than a return of a descendant of the house of David to be a king in the future. Um, it's not really distinguished. The concept of a Mashiach, uh, of this future Mashiach, gets a lot more developed in the rabbinic period. And then we have all sorts of theories about what the Mashiach will be or won't be and how many of them. And there's, uh, you, you may know the rabbinic concept of the Mashiach ben David, the, the Mashiach who is descended from David, the Mashiach ben Yosef, the, son, the Mashiach who is uh, descended from Yosef, and uh, they may have different functions. Um, none of, it, what is interesting is in rabbinic discussion, Nobody ever says you have to believe this about Mashiach. It's not an issue of belief. It's, you know, it's, at some point, God is going to send somebody appointed uh, for the next stage of history. You know, when we get to Geula, when we get to redemption, there will be figures who God appoints. Maybe one, maybe two, don't know, this tribe, that tribe. Um, but none of it is made a test case. And you know, when, when you go even later to the Middle Ages, and Rambam makes his famous 13 principles, for which he got a lot of flack, by the way. You shouldn't think that Rambam's principles does, everyone went, oh, those are lovely. Uh, a lot of people went, this one's totally wrong. And uh, there's a nice book by, um, oh, name has escaped me. Uh, Mark, Mark, it's called The Limits of All Stops theology and I should know because I edited the book but my Mark Shapiro there we are uh, who has a fabulous discussion of, of the reception and, of, and disagreements with with Rambam's 13 principles but you know all he says is I believe Mashiach will come God will appoint somebody to sort out the other end of history but he doesn't actually require um, he doesn't give a job description 
um, he doesn't really go into huge details and uh, generally the rabbis you know would have theories but none of them seem to have been the only theory uh, the best parallel I can think of is Jewish ideas of what happens after you die we're very vague about it rabbis say all sorts of things some of which are completely contradictory um, one of the rabbis by the way said you know there will be no Mashiach in the form of a person uh, or you know there, there, there are all sorts of ideas but they don't seem to be uh, binding they're sort of fairly open there's a principle that God is going to redeem us. Yeah, that's a major principle of Judaism. There's a principle that human beings will probably be involved in that as a mis as, as you know, special shlichim from God. Okay, but beyond that, we're very reluctant to tie it down, to tie um, what happens after death down. Um, partly because we're much more this world focused, and partly because I think um, Judaism has an attitude of saying, uh, we're happy to leave it in the hands of God. God has promised us he will save us. Um, ultimately there will be geula and that is a absolutely rock solid promise and why should we fuss about exactly the mechanism by which he's going to do it we know that you know god has made the soul and that at death it goes back to god why should we fuss about the exact mechanism and whether we retain this part of consciousness or that we trust that god will make it okay that's fine meanwhile we have a job to do we have mitzvot we have got to get on and we've got to, you know we have a mission to 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 the world and, and make the world the kingdom of God and spread the kingdom of, of God in the world and that's what we should be focusing on and the rest is it's nice and speculative but it's not our main job whereas Christians it's not really that way around because uh, um, Christianity is founded on the idea that Jesus is you know a the Messiah be part of God you know and has redeemed the world by his suffering and uh, uh, so it's not an optional thing it's it's absolutely central to Christian faith um, which I you know, understand but don't share. I love so, how you brought us back to the to like, okay, we got a job to do in this world. Let's worry about other things later. Well, thank yes, you so that. much. I wanted to give the last words to validate Midrash. Yes, thank you so much, Rabbi Nitzan and Bethel, for joining us as a co-sponsor. Um, thank you, Rabbi uh, Raba, Raba Lindsay Taylor Kukars, for your time today. And if any of you want to join us again, um, we have a program on Monday with uh, Professor Sarna and on Tuesday with Rabbi Kaim Sadler Feller. So thank you and have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank have a happy <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.